I would like to begin our discussion with the discipline of philosophy itself. In the United Kingdom, you're a household personality. You appear on major media networks and other articles published in mainstream magazines and newspapers. Here in the United States, I can't recall seeing um, a true philosopher, aside from perhaps Noam Chomsky or Howard Zinn, and even then only in the independent media being consulted on a major corporate media network. So a couple of questions for you. What does this say to you about the respective societies that differentiate the United States and Europe when it comes to philosophical thinking and debate over ideas? And then why should philosophy really matter for the average person today? What is its contributions? And finally, what is your opinion uh, on the major faults of contemporary philosophers for uh, why philosophy has become a more or less arcane study today, like perhaps alchemy in the past, that holds interest to only a relatively small segment of society. That's at least true in the United States. Please take your time. Well, three very interesting and important questions there. Let me take the last one first, uh, what's happened to philosophy I think the answer to that is that um, the change in the way that we've uh, dealt with intellectual subjects, I mean, since the 19th century, with the growth of uh, the university sector, we've started paying people's salaries to be historians or literary critics or, or philosophers. And maybe that's the single worst thing that's happened to philosophy, is that you give somebody a wage all his life long or her life long to uh, philosophize. Uh, and the thing is that... Um, you know, ideas are very precious commodities, and uh, uh, he's a, a pretty considerable individual who has uh, one big idea in a lifetime, you know, let alone a dozen of them. And the result has been that the universities, especially philosophy departments and universities, have become very scholastic. When you go back to the medieval period when scholasticism was uh, uh, the order of the day, very fine distinctions, great long words, lots of hair-splitting argument, um, and the result is that everything becomes very theoretical, moves away from a more immediate impact on daily life and daily thinking. And to a very large extent, I'm afraid that's happened in the academy. Not entirely, because in the last couple of decades, we've seen uh, a demand for more applied aspects of philosophy. So the, um, the ethics of, of medical care, for example, the ethics of war, those sorts of considerations, environmental ethics have come back into, into public debate because, of course, people out there uh, in the public are interested in those questions and would really like to see some contribution. So that, 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 that's been a, a, an aspect and how you live your life. Because morality is a, is a narrower matter about the uh, rights and wrongs of your, in your relationships with other people and your attitude towards yourself, um, about the good and bad and your obligations uh, in, in those relationships. And to give you an example, um, what color you paint the front door of your house is an ethical matter because it says something about your aesthetic, about your character, about your view of things. But unless it's a really horrible color that upsets the neighbors, it's not a moral matter what color you paint the front door of your house. So that's an example of the, of the distinction there. Then you went on to raise this question about uh, how we all use the term liberty and we invoke it as a very feel-good term. Uh, everybody's in favor of it, of course. And then it turns out that what people really mean by liberty is libertarianism, which is a quite different thing. That's license rather than freedom. It's the license to tread on other people's heads in order to get advantage for yourself. And you're quite right that uh, in the world today, too few people have too much of the resources of the world. Too few people have their hands on the leaders of power. And alas, of course, this is uh, 
just a continuation of how things have always been for most people throughout history. There is one little glimmer of hope here, which is that most people alive today in one or another of the Western democracies, you and me, for example, we have the opportunities and the potentialities in life which just three or four hundred years ago only the wealthiest of aristocrats had, only a very tiny elite had. And this uh, diffusion of genuine liberty and genuine possibility in human life has been quite general uh, among people in, in Western nations, but of course it's very far from complete, and of course we're still very much dominated by these interest groups who, who have their hands on the leaders and who know how to manipulate them. As I'm sure you have been made familiar, the Tea Party is a unique phenomenon. Uh, what happens to it over the next 12 months, I would imagine it will fracture when those neocons or Republicans try to take advantage of its uh, not having a single dynamic leader, and though it was meant to be for Ron Paul, who himself was a, is a libertarian. Uh, but instead of running as a libertarian, he made the mistake of running as a Republican and, and received very little attention except from young people. And yet today, the, the liberals in our society have denigrated the Tea Partyists. And I mean, one in particular, Keith Oberman, uh, equates them virtually with all racists. And they're just one negative appetite after another. Well, I've taken the time to go on to several of their meetings and where, yes, you can find some... Uh, very irresponsible thinking people, a lot of the people that I ask questions of, why are you here, what are your beliefs, what's important to you, it was almost universally the same, that they didn't like uh, the, the idea that their taxes were being spent without proper representation. I don't find that um, a hard thing to accept. I believe all of us would like to see, even in England, our taxes better spent. I'm sure that recently when this scandal occurred of how some members of your parliament were spending taxpayer money, it uh, it rubbed them a little raw. And we'd like to believe that people are in office to serve our interests. And then the reality comes that we're shown that they're serving those who paid for access to them, the lobbyists, the special interest groups. And more and more Americans are waking up. I, don't, I can't speak for England, but I'd like for you to, and say, hold on a second. If we're really going to have a, a, a representative democracy, shouldn't the person that's supposed to be representing us represent us, we the people, and not the big agribusiness, the big pharmaceutical, the military industrial complex, the big telecommunications, and all these other special interest groups that frequently are at loggerheads with us? And then... I started to see that the real arguments about how can we improve the quality of our lives, how can we become more sustainable, how can we become more honoring the needs of the people, all that is set aside, smacked aside by the name calling between one group and another. And so then we have no real place for Americans to complain. If in the United States today you got up to complain about something you did not like, either the left or right is going to shout you down. Now, the right has shouted people down from the left, and now the left is shouting down anyone on the right. So then the question is, well, then, is there any place that you can take your problems and speak them out to the people who are responsible for causing them without now being called a nut job or a racist or even a terrorist? And it reminds me in India, there's a saying, the mind is like a drunken monkey, which means a drunken monkey cannot sit still on a single branch, but needs to be in constant motion and uh, 
aggravation to jump from limb to limb. And this seems to be very characteristic of not just Western society, but also some uh, European society with epidemic ADD and ADHD and alcoholism and anxiety disorders and depression and seeking some form of trivial entertainment, but not wanting to look at serious issues. And then, then we have to ask, is this really the way we're going to resolve our problems? Is anything going to change? It reminds me of what Henry Thoreau stated, you can't perceive beauty but with a serene mind. So what does this say about our sensibilities for open and honest dialogue, changing problems into solutions, and having a way that we can express ourselves and our honest and legitimate grievances without suddenly being tarred and feathered from one side or the other as just malcontents? Please give us your insights. Well, there is something in common between the situation in the U.S., as you uh, painted there, and in the U.K., this side of the Atlantic, which is that, um, that there is a kind of tension between, on the one hand, the fact that in a representative democracy, uh, if it's not going to be the big interests that um, tell our governments what to do in effect because they're paying the re-election bills for the uh, members of that government, if it's not going to be them, then uh, every one of us who has the vote has to be an informed and engaged, uh, an active participant in the process and get our, get our views registered through the ballot box. We need a due process there. We, we don't want to uh, turn it into daily referendums or, or anything like that, but we, we do need to get an engaged electorate. But on the other hand, we've all got our lives to live. We've got our children to look after, our careers to develop, uh, our, our own interests to nurture. And you get a lot of people who say, well, I just wish that the people that we put into a position of authority in our society would behave responsibly and would do the job that they're delegated to do by us and uh, to um, stick to their, uh, their um, promises at election time so that we can get on with our own lives. So you have a tension between the need to be engaged, informed and active politically, but on the other hand, um, wanting the politicians and, and the governing folk get on with their jobs so that we can get on with our lives. And uh, um, it reminds me of what uh, Churchill said about democracy. Everybody's, you know, everybody quotes uh, Churchill saying democracy is the least bad of a lot of bad systems. But he also said that one of the strongest arguments against democracy is a couple of minutes spent with any ordinary voter. And you can see why he said that. But, but, but his remark is not really an argument against democracy. It's an argument against um, people who live in democratic polities from not taking enough uh, of a part in the process of not informing themselves, using their votes wisely, and taking opportunities to, to register their views about things. A much more engaged democracy would be a better one, uh, and one in which people were m more informed. And, you know, we've got a problem here because, on the one hand, people don't take enough notice of what's happening. On the other hand, they believe too many conspiracy theories and, uh, you know, the r rhetoric that's thrown from one side of the political spectrum to the other is sometimes very distorting about what's actually happening in governing circles and in the country as a whole. So it needs to be reliable, sensible, thoughtful, mature uh, understanding of, of, of the process and of, and of what's happening in it so that people really can take a proper part in it. Um, in recent years, in recent years, there's been a great difficulty over uh, very low turnouts at elections in various countries. In the United States, for example, before the Obama election, um, when people's imaginations are engaged and when they become much more uh, a part of, of a, a movement which is changing sentiment in the country, they do turn out to vote and they do take a greater interest. Sustaining that is very hard to do. And I suppose, in the end, it's a question of social education. 
this great privilege of living in a country which has a democratic set of institutions and in which people can take a part places an obligation on people to step up to the mark and do that. And, you know, it sounds a bit like, you know, uh, a council of perfection, a bit like an idealization. But if only one could encourage everybody to be much, much more responsible and mature about that, then I think the quality of our governance, the quality of our democracies would be better. Thank you. I really appreciated the, the nuance on the, uh, on the insight. I'm going to throw um, a different question in your direction, if you would, please. I believe everyone is interested in peace in the Middle East, and yet virtually everything that we're doing in the United States would undermine that effort at peace. We give a disproportionate amount of our resources to one side, Israel, and then when Israel does go against the um, the different uh, UN resolutions, uh, it does so with complete um, indifference because it knows that there are, there's not going to be any consequence. So it's now going further into displacing the Palestinians, even from the very limited living quality of life situations they're in. So, but and yet we continue to give them about four, three to four billion dollars a year. On the other hand, we give the Palestinians almost nothing. They live in the world's largest apartheid prison. And everyone in the Middle East, whether it's Sunni or Shia, it could be Saudi Arabia, which is Sunni, or it could be Iran, which is Shia, or Iraq, or um, or Lebanon, uh, which is a combination. All of them are concerned about this this uh, very um, difficult situation, and all agree that if it were, if there was able to be peace, a peaceful solution in the uh, Middle East in Israel it would do much better for the relationships of all both the Arab and the Persian states' cooperation. Give us your insights, and if you would be listened to, if they would say, yes, we will sit down seriously and listen to what uh, Professor Grelling has to say. Tell us in no, no short time, take your whatever time is necessary, what would you bring to that discussion that we have not heard up to this point that would help resolve this ancient conflict? This has to be one of the most difficult tangles in, uh, in international affairs today, and it's a running sore, isn't it, because it's the source of so many other knock-on effects and, and difficulties in the world, too. I, I think that the, the, the nub of the problem is that the uh, series of knots, the series of tangles lying one on top of another, which makes it such an intractable problem, uh, starts so early and, and runs so deep. On the one hand, you've got the Jewish people, after the appalling experience of the Holocaust, wanting to have a, a place of their own, wanting to be able to uh, take action to defend themselves if necessary, and uh, capitalizing on the Zionist movement started in the 19th century, uh, making of uh, a part of Palestine a homeland. And on the other hand, you have the displacement of the Palestinians, and you have the fact that the tensions that have existed between the State of Israel and its neighbors has exacerbated uh, the, the dangers to Israel itself and the appalling situation that the Palestinians find themselves in. 
you've got uh, some, you know, really uh, horrible events of the, the insurgency, the Israeli insurgency against the British, for example, in the Palestinian mandate, uh, driving out uh, Palestinians, uh, massacring some populations there. On the other hand, you've got the fact that the neighboring Arab states refuse to accept the Palestinian refugees because to do so would be to uh, recognize the existence of Israel. So right from the very beginning, the Palestinians have been a displaced people and they've, uh, they've lost their homeland. So you get one intractability on top of another intractability. The people I most admire are those people in Israel itself who are pro-Palestinian, people who think in terms of a one-state solution, perhaps, or who recognize that there is uh, no excuse for the human rights violations that flow from Israel's, on the other hand, perfectly justified self-defense activities. Uh, that there, there is so, such a weight of, um, of, of right and wrong, of, of legitimate and illegitimate claims of both sides of the argument, that it's almost impossible to, to see how you can get out of it unless, unless it happens that you have what you might call, for convenience, a Mandela moment. What I mean by that is this. Remember when Nelson Mandela was released in South Africa and uh, the apartheid regime there came to an end? One thing that could have happened is that revenge could have been taken on the white population, which had for so long oppressed and suppressed the non-white population. Instead of which, uh, Mandela, by the authority, individual authority of being uh, a genuine leader, uh, made it possible for the country to go through that transition without great bloodshed. I mean, there's still many problems there, of course, but it, it, the example of, a, of a, a really great leader with great moral authority who can help people move through a time of difficulty uh, without exacerbating those difficulties. What one would love to see is a Mandela-like figure on the Israeli side and a Mandela-like figure on the Palestinian side who could really talk to one another and really lead their people towards uh, uh, some genuine mutual understanding because there is understanding necessary on both sides of this debate uh, and to some actually constructive, really genuinely constructive efforts at uh, living side by side somehow and of making a go of the fact that they occupy a tiny little piece of territory so rich in history, so uh, rich uh, in bad kinds of history as well, where if they don't make a, 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 some sort of an agreement, some sort of rapprochement in the future, they are only going to make more generations of children suffer, live in a very stressful and a very dangerous situation. It can't be uh, that the normal international diplomatic circles, they can palliate matters, they can try and damp down the conflicts and the, and the stresses that exist on both sides of the Israeli-Palestine uh, border. It can't be that. It's got to be something organic. It's got to come out of the Israelis and the Palestinians themselves. Leaders have got to arise from there with the courage and the vision to say to their own people, these are the compromises we have to make, these are the things that we have to understand about the other side, and we've got to be able to sit down together and talk to one another. And it's amazingly the case, you know, that a lot of Israelis and Palestinians do work together. There's a lot of uh, uh, cooperation, there are a lot of enterprises there which show that it's possible for there to be understanding. You only have to think about Daniel Barenboim's orchestra, uh, which is a, a mixture of Israeli and, and Palestinian musicians, and which performs in the Middle East and elsewhere. Uh, all, all these are little straws of, of optimism and hope in, in the wind, but of course they're tiny little straws against the background of a great conflagration, so it, it's very difficult to see how by themselves they can work. 
what's really required is something that will come out of the sentiments of the people themselves, perhaps at a time of great weariness or the struggle has worn everybody down to such an extent that they finally realize that it takes an enormous amount of moral courage to say, we've got to compromise, we've got to understand the other side, and we've got to find somebody on the other side who will understand us. That, that's the way that uh, peace and hope lies, but it's a very, very difficult and stony route. I thank you for that insight. Now, one more question on peace in Iraq and Afghanistan. This audience knows that I have been against all military conflicts from the Vietnam War to this time. And historically, those of us who were against these wars, even if we came from a different political and religious background, we were all, in the end, correct. These did not serve any purpose that helped uh, the world or helped any particular group except those that profit from war. In Afghanistan and Iraq in particular, the most powerful figure emerging in Iraq is Muqtasadr, who is the son of the former lead Iman of Iraq, who was killed by um, Saddam Hussein, who's in Iran studying to, uh, his seven years to take the place of a spiritual leader and hence bring with that spiritual leadership all of his uh, Sadr's militia, which is over 250,000, are men who have not been in conflict now. They've gone to ground. They're not fighting. And we take credit for, gee whiz, General Petraeus creating a surge, which lessened the conflict. And I said, no, no, that's like putting, if in London you had a, a gang on a street and you put five cops on that street, you're not going to have that gang there. But that doesn't mean that that's become a safe street. It means it becomes a pre an occupied street. And therefore, there's only safety as well as long as the occupation goes on. But what if every street in England had uh, a member of organized crime? Are you going to put five cops on every street in, in there? And that doesn't mean you've dealt with crime. It just means you've created a deterrent to it. And so I'm saying, look at the look at the reality of what's going on in Iraq. And I do not see where our presence there is going to contribute to a peaceful solution. I see as long as we're there, as long as the military occupation continues a massive poverty, massive suffering, massive human, uh, uh, the um, innocent civilian tolls, and especially on children, and uh, that one day we will have virtually alienated everyone. And once we do leave or are forced to leave, then in comes this religious leader, and with him uh, the Sharia laws, and with him a stricter interpretation of Islamic principles, and then you're going to end up with something similar to either the Turkey at its best, or Egypt, uh, or or Iran at its worst, and we're completely clueless of this. We don't discuss this possibility. We don't. We like to think that democracy will reign. Well, the democracy theirs, as we all know, is a corrupt one. And the same thing in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, you have over 1,200 separate villages that have their own individual tribal leaders. Many are supportive of the Taliban uh, because they at least uh, did what the corrupt central government wouldn't do for them, even though they had to give up a lot of their uh, freedoms, uh, like playing music and, and, and other things, uh, women working. Um, and because the Taliban is going by the same strict uh, principles from their um, madras schools or religious schools in this, uh, and, and looking at Islamic fundamentalism in its strictest sense. And now we're saying, but all these people who are supportive of Taliban are our enemy. We have to be everywhere. And I'm saying it's not, you cannot win this war. It's not winnable. 
All you're going to do is cause enormous loss of lives, theirs, ours, the environment, enormous drain of resources, and like the Russians before us, after nine years and 15,000 dead, we will one day be forced to leave. But the neocons and a lot of uh, Democrats and Republicans continue to support this war, including the one man who won the Nobel Prize, which gave me no respect for this Nobel Prize, Barack Obama, who got the Nobel Prize for peace and has done nothing but escalate this war, including the drones attacked in Pakistan. So I don't see that anything we're doing now is going to lead to a long-term peaceable solution in that area of the world Those are my personal prejudices. Would you share your thoughts, what you see as a more constructive way for us to disengage and how peace could be brought to that region of the world? Well, I agree with you absolutely on both counts. I I think the Iraq and Afghanistan situations are in in important ways very different from one another. The The Iraq invasion in 2003 was an extremely serious and very foolish mistake. There's no question at all that the Saddam Hussein regime was a, was a bad regime. Uh, uh, human rights atrocities had been committed by the uh, Saddam regime, and um, it, it, was a, it was a very bad situation for a number of people there, but not for everybody. One thing that Saddam Hussein managed to do was to keep religious differences pretty well under control, and uh, it was a functionally um, secular dispensation. It's one of the countries in the Middle East which had the highest level of, uh, of general education and literacy. It had the potential to be uh, a wealthy and flourishing country if there hadn't been internal political problems uh, that the Ba'athists were responsible for. But to go in there to invade, and especially to do it in the way that was valid, you know, with, uh, on the Rumsfeld doctrine of do it on the cheap with uh, minimum forces, all that it simply did was to stir up a hornet's nest of difficulties which will take decades, if not generations, to settle down. So a bad situation was made vastly worse by doing it. It was one of the worst worst things that could have been done. And we, we look at it from the perspective of the UK here because uh, uh, Mr. Blair, Prime Minister at the time who uh, supported President Bush in this adventure, in fact, he supported him extremely vigorously because you may remember that he traveled all around the world trying to drum up support to make it a, an international. It couldn't be a UN thing because the There was no resolution at the UN for the invasion, but trying to make it as international as possible. And one motivation that Mr. Blair might have had was that if the United States of America had invaded Iraq unilaterally without a single ally, the polarizing effect of that might have been vastly worse than it has been. It's been bad enough. So he managed to cobble together an alliance of of very rather small countries and went into Iraq uh, alongside the Americans. And the British, um, of course, are responsible for the way that the Middle East is currently organized. As you know, after the First World War in 1919, in fact, right up until the Cairo Conference of 1921, it was uh, uh, British authorities in the Middle East who quite literally drew lines in the sand and uh, made up the countries that exist there now. And the motivation for that was twofold. One was, back in 1911, Winston Churchill has to be mentioned again here because at that time he was the Secretary of State for the Navy, and the British Navy in the first decade of the 20th century was the biggest navy in the world by quite a long way, Uh, he decided that he was going to switch the um, engines of the uh, battleships from coal-powered to oil-powered because he didn't want the uh, British Navy uh, held to ransom by striking coal miners in Wales. And this meant that we had to take control of the oil fields, first in Iran, mainly in Persia, as it was in those days. But uh, they were also aware of the fact that there was oil elsewhere in the Middle East, and they were interested in that. But at that time in the First World War, 
one of the big anxieties for the, for the British was the protection of India, which was quite literally the jewel in the crown of the empire. And they were very worried about uh, uh, any enemies getting hold of the Suez Canal and, and stopping maritime traffic through there. And they were even more worried about the fact that uh, the Germans had become allies of the Ottoman Empire, which controlled most of the Middle East at that time. And the Germans had built a railway line through the Middle East right down to Medina. And they thought that in time of war, this would give the Germans pole position to attack uh, India on the overland route. And this great impulse to keep uh, enemies away from India. And remember, the Indian Empire stretched from the Yemen and the Saudi Arabian Peninsula all the way to Burma. It was a massive stretch of the world. And, uh, and there had been a long, long effort by the British to keep anybody else out. The reason why we were on the Afghanistan frontier was to keep the Russian Empire out before the First World War and during the First World War to keep the Germans out. And that is why at the end of 1918, when that war ended, the British had a million troops in the Middle East. It's a fact now often forgotten what a huge endeavor was put in by the British to defeat the Ottomans in the Middle East and take it over and carve it up. And they did carve it up. They quite literally drew lines and said, right, this is going to be Iraq. And they took a member of the um, family of the Sharif of Medina, uh, Hussein, uh, a Sunni, and they made him king of a, of a Shiite country, Iraq, this new country. And you look at the straight lines of the borders. That was because the British agent Gertrude Bell quite literally taken a ruler. And Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, said to Churchill, who by this time was the colonial secretary in charge of, of uh, dividing up the Middle East. He's been a big player in our history in many ways. John Maynard Keynes said to him, in 1921, he said, if you uh, cut the Middle East up with a pair of scissors, you're going to be fighting wars there in 100 years' time. Originally, the Arabs had joined the British in the Arab revolt against the Ottomans because they thought the British were going to give them a pan-Arab nation in, in the Middle East, centered on Damascus, the beautiful jewel of the Middle East, the wonderful oasis in the Syrian desert. Uh, and that uh, promise wasn't kept uh, France was given Lebanon, you know, the Paris of the East, Beirut, and the, the British took over Iraq, and they took over Egypt, and they took over Sinai, and they did it because they wanted to control those routes to India and to have access to the oil supplies. And from that day, from 1921, Cairo Conference, until this day, there have been difficulties there. Look back across the history of that region, and you see the British were finally thrown out, the revolutions, the Mossadegh Revolution, uh, the uh, uh, Iranian Revolution that brought in the Ayatollah Khomeini, the uh, Ba'athist Revolution in Iraq. The only country left in the Middle East which is still functionally secular in the Ba'athist tradition is Syria. And the ruling family there uh, is, is, is not part of the majority religious outlook. They're a sect of Islam which other Muslims don't really regard as genuine. Uh, and in Jordan, we have uh, one of the Hashemites, the last Hashemite family. The Hashemites were the offspring of the um, Sharif of Medina that the British had used as a client. Uh, King Abdullah, he is a Hashemite, and he's still a friend of the West in the way that they all were when they were first set up. But it's a diminishing presence. And so the terrible mistake of thinking that we should go back into the Middle East and retain some kind of control by having a great big footprint there and making in our own image a secular uh, Muslim democracy in a country like Iraq with all its rich resources of educated people and oil, that dream, which was the neocon dream, of getting, a, uh, you know, getting its wedge into the Middle East like that, was based on a terrible mistake. And the terrible mistake was that that kind of arrangement was never wanted by the Arabs. They felt betrayed right from uh, the end of the First World War, and uh, it was never going to stick. 
And so if you, if you put a burning stick into a, into a hornet's nest, what you're going to get is stung, and we're being stung big time now. Now, Afghanistan is slightly different. The reasoning behind going to Afghanistan was uh, uh, partly, of course, and crucially because the, the al-Qaeda was given house room there, and they were planning these attacks on the West from there. There was some justification for a police action against them, no question about that. But the, the larger historical uh, um, fact about Afghanistan is that no outside power has ever been able to manage Afghanistan. Every power that's tried to do it, the British in the 19th century and early 20th century, the Russians uh, more recently, and now the Western Alliance, uh, gets a very bloody nose when it tries. It's, it's uh, talking about intractable problems. The Afghan problem is a very intractable one, even for Afghans themselves. You have this powerful, proud, uh, very, very military tribe, the, the Pashtun people, who live in the southern Afghanistan and right over into Balochistan and Pakistan, and they will never accept outside hegemony. They will never accept being dictated to. Uh, you can make them your allies temporarily, but only temporarily. There's a great deal of, of uh, uh, difference between the outlook of the different tribes in Afghanistan. The northern Afghans are somewhat more amenable, somewhat more friendly, but they're weak in comparison to the Pashtuns, relatively speaking. And the, the situation is, is a, a deeply unsettled one, made infinitely worse by outside meddling. And it's one of those situations where, quite frankly, containment is by far the better option. And the hope that time and natural processes of economic and social evolution might um, bring the Afghan tribesmen with their very, very powerful traditions and their being wedded very powerfully to the past more into a, a contemporary understanding and possibility of of a different kind of relationship with their neighbors and with the rest of the world. But that's not a quick fix. And uh, if you try to do it by military means or you try to hurry the process, all you're going to do is make them more entrenched and perpetuate the difficulty. So we've stepped into two very sticky puddles of tar there, which are going to be causing us a lot of problems for a long time yet, because just think of it, the war in Iraq has gone on for much longer than the Second World War. The war in Afghanistan has gone on even longer than that. What are we doing? We're hemorrhaging money and people and uh, time and attention. We're being distracted by it. Money is pouring into those parts of the world and going into corrupt pockets and into futile endeavors when we've all got problems in our own home countries that we really ought to be thinking about more carefully. Thank you very much for that. Um, I also believe that we do not look at the consequences of our actions. We only look at the immediate impulse and the political goodwill we make from that, like being tough on terrorism. And yet terrorism is not a group of people in one location. It is a, it's a different philosophy that we do not understand. We don't approach the subject correctly. And as a result, we think it's just a militarized approach, and we'll bomb them. And look at where that's going to go with Iran. I believe that within the next three years, at the latest, possibly earlier, um, Iran will be bombed by Israel with American uh, support. Uh, and that is going to cause the neocons and the Sarah Palin's others in this country to go, yes. And then suddenly the backlash. You cannot destroy a country of one million, million militarized individuals who are trained in guerrilla warfare and the home of Hezbollah um, to be destroyed. They're three times bigger than Iraq's armed forces. You may knock out their military capacity, 
but you are going to now unleash that hornet's nest you referred to. They will be able to have uh, uh, common friends, or at least allies, not friends, that will support possibly an oil embargo. Now, the last embargo was 1971, and we saw that suddenly America just went dry. I was here. You had to spend, sometimes you could only drive 100 miles in a week. It, it really impacted people. And that was a relatively minor one when OPEC wanted to take the price of oil from 3 to $10 a gallon, which it did. Now we're looking at what would happen if uh, Iran is attacked. I can assure you that even Saudi Arabia or other countries that uh, may be happy about that and are Sunni instead of Shia and in some respects uh, consider themselves opposite uh, ends would still have to unify because any Arab nation or Persian nation that did not unify against an attack this uh, and did not voice uh, strong opposition to this would themselves be victims of terrorist attacks. Could you look at just for a moment the downside of what would happen if we became so impropitious that we decided to blow a hole through Iran and think that that's all that's required and then get the blowback that is inevitable to come and how that could impact on our lives in England? And whatever happens in America, you realize it's going to happen in England, too. Yeah, it would be an appalling situation if um, military action were taken against Iran. As you say, the likelihood is that it might come from Israel, which in uh, trying to be prospectively um, defensive against the possibility of the use of nuclear weapons by Iran. Although, you know, we take a step back from this and think, would Iran use nuclear weapons against Israel, given that its own clients, Hezbollah, and its own co-religionists are in, in very close neighboring states? I mean, there are some question marks to be raised there. But the worst-case scenario is that Iran goes ahead, gets a nuclear capability, uh, Israel won't accept it, and it takes uh, um, anticipatory action, and it attacks Iran. And then all the consequences that you just mentioned begin to follow, with, with the possible exception of one, and that is that there is a great deal of hostility uh, towards Iran from, uh, from its neighbors in the region, especially from Saudi Arabia, and it, it, it's just possible that there might not be the kind of unity that you mentioned. But whether or not there is, there would still be this massive knock-on that you've described. It would uh, impact the world economy in a way that this recent recession would look like a picnic and in which the conflicts that we're now engaged in in Iraq and Afghanistan would also look like a picnic. I mean, it would be vastly worse than the situation is now. And one has to say that the way the current Iranian regime is behaving against the will, I think, of the majority of its own people, because, you know, Iran is a very young country. It's got a lot of, you know, large proportion of its population is very young, very pro-Western, very pro-American, many of them, uh, very anxious to get rid of this regime. So, you know, the regime is, uh, it, it does not really reflective of sentiment of the country is at large. But that regime is behaving incredibly irresponsibly. The fact that it is not engaging in discussion about just what it's doing with its nuclear capability, its claims that it's for peaceful, civil power generation use, uh, but everybody's very suspicious, rightly so, that it's trying to get a weapon. Of course it's trying to get a weapon. And the fact that it is, is very destabilizing. So it has to take a big slice of the blame here for behaving in a way which is irresponsible. Irresponsible even though it's understandable from its own point of view. Naturally, it wants regional superpower status, and it wants to be capable of brandishing weapons at uh, not just at Israel, but at anybody else who doesn't happen to like the cut of its jib. Uh, in that region. So it's behaving irresponsibly. 
if uh, Israel were to take action against Iran because Iran has got a weapon, that would be understandable, if not excusable. One's got to separate the question of culpability from the question of, of, of recognizing that uh, uh, an, agent, an agent like a state player has a, uh, has a reason for doing what it does. All that that does, of course, is to add to the complexity of the situation. What we need now, it's a matter of urgency, it can't be left to drift on uh, any longer, is some really major steps that diffuse the situation, which slow down this process, which give people a bit of time for mature thought on what the consequences might be, because as you describe them, they're immensely destabilizing. And by the way, it should also be making people think uh, much more seriously about trying to decouple um, the rest of the world from over-reliance on oil. You were talking very eloquently before you and I started our conversation uh, about the, the climate problem, and you were talking about um, just how much our oil hunger is uh, uh, destroying the world around us that, that we're living in. We're, we're fouling our own nest by overconsumption, uh, and in particular overconsumption of fossil fuels. Now, if there's a political dimension to this as well as a climate change dimension, which is that it is precisely our dependence on oil from the Middle East, which has made these countries rich, given them the uh, position that they have in the world today and the potential for both for good and for destabilization in the world. And um, if we were less reliant on oil from that region, more reliant on alternative and cleaner forms of energy, uh, we might reduce some of the tensions that exist from the fact that there is all this money. I have to say one thing, that um, the Saudis have been extremely active in using their money to fund mosques and uh, schools and provide books for mosque uh, bookstores uh, in our own country here in the United Kingdom. And this literature and the, the teaching and the Wahhabi sentiment that comes out of Saudi Arabia is uh, very inimical to the West and Western values. It doesn't like pluralism. It doesn't like the freedoms given to women. It doesn't want to see girls educated. It wants to see Sharia law come into force. It wants to see a much stricter uh, observance of uh, religious conformity. You know, Saudi Arabia is a country that has moral police who have whips, and if they see a woman's ankle, they'll strike her with the whips. So only very recently, women were given an entitlement to drive themselves in a motor car. You know, so uh, the, the, the fact that we're pouring money into Saudi Arabia, and it's using some of that money to spread its vision of the world into other countries, is part of a, of a very big complex. That, that they're not the only ones that we have some concerns about, but uh, it's part of a very complex situation where our consumerism, our hunger for energy, uh, has uh, put into the hands of people who are, are not always agreeing with us about how things should be organized a, uh, a stick to beat us with Thank you. I, now to back to pure philosophy and my last two questions for you. Two other issues that arise for me when, when we discuss different ideas are the values and understanding placed on an idea as being either absolute to human nature or relative and subject to change. And secondly, the fact that when an idea arises, such as Marxism or democracy or evolution or even sacred text, we always considered a good idea at the time because it addresses a certain historical condition or time, but then can become a dreadfully bad idea later in history. And both questions seem to be related. So first, speak, if you would please, about the conflict between placing absolute or relative value on an idea. And it would seem that if we can appreciate the relative nature 
of an idea, then we are more likely able to understand its need to change or be replaced by a more relevant and realistic idea. I think established uh, established religion is a good example of this, especially those who ignore the historical uh, reality behind the writing of Scripture and hold it only a notion of Scripture being the factual word of a divinity instead of what it actually is. Could you address yeah. that, please? Yes, I know this is a very important point, a very, very good question. Um, first, let's just set aside one use of the term relativism, which is not uh, um, uh, uh, germane to this point, uh, and that is the idea that uh, uh, different sets of moral values, different outlooks in the world, different religions, all have an equal kind of validity, so that even if you think uh, X is right and I think X is wrong, you're okay because you're coming from your tradition and I'm okay because I'm coming from mine. Now, that kind of relativism, which is associated with a lot of postmodern thinking, uh, is, I think, um, uh, arguably deeply wrong. But it's a different debate, that one. Uh, and I, I think it's wrong, by the way, in, in a way which does relate to the point that you raised, and that's this, that there are certain universals that apply to uh, human beings, human nature, the human condition. These are the sorts of universals touched upon when we try to institute um, global uh, regimes of rights, like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, for example. They're about the very basic, most simple and elementary needs that human beings have for uh, a right to life, for privacy, for the opportunity to form relationships with other people, with the right to exercise some choices over things that uh, deeply concern them. These are the sorts of things that get protected in regimes of rights, of bills of rights, because they open a space around the individual to uh, use his or her own talents and capacities to, to make a good life. That's very different. It's quite a subversive thing, that, in a way, because it's very different from the one-size-fits-all, top-down um, you know, um, ideology, whether it's the Catholicism of Torquemada or the Stalinism of uh, Joseph Stalin, which says we own the one great truth and everybody's got to sign up to it and everybody's got to obey. So th this idea of rights, of these universal needs that people have for privacy, for uh, a right to life, for a right to form their own relationships, that applies to everybody everywhere. Everybody needs some food, some companionship, some warm place to be out of the rain, and some opportunity to exercise this marvelous gift that we human beings have, which is our intelligence and our creativity. Having said that, however, uh, obviously, historical circumstances change. And we have to be able to be flexible and adaptable in our response to those changing conditions. We have to be able to, to grow along with the world and along with our understanding of our fellow human beings. We have to be able to grow alongside our increasing scientific understanding of the world around us. We take, for example, um, say, uh, homosexuality in our societies, which until very, very recently in almost every country in the world, uh, since at least classical antiquity where it was accepted, uh, it, it was frowned upon. It was frowned upon for Judeo-Christian reasons, mainly because in the Jewish tradition, which was a tradition of herding people, where the increase of the flocks really mattered, so misdirection of the seed was a, was a terrible thing because life and death depended upon increasing your flocks. So those, those sorts of things were punished. And then you get the anomalous situation that in some Christian moralities, uh, the attitude was taken that masturbation is worse than rape because at least rape can result in the increase of the flock you know, in, in, in pregnancy. And, and that kind of distorted thinking uh, has persisted. But societies in the West at least have grown up to some extent and have recognized that um, loving relationships between people is what really matters. It doesn't matter so much what 
what gender they are, what sex they are, and in the more enlightened uh, attitude to these things, we are more accepting and understanding of them, quite rightly so. And this is an example of how societies and legal structures and attitudes can change over time, become uh, different because we understand things better and we're more reflective about them. And in that sense, our thinking about things and the way we deal with them has to be relative to the conditions and demands of the time. But that relativity is not a relativism. It doesn't mean that uh, you know, your, your morality, if it's very different from mine, is equally valid with mine. Mine might be wrong, actually, when one looks at the, at the bigger picture of what human beings are and what they need. That kind of relativism gets in the way of a genuine understanding of what is universal but what needs to change. And we understand it in that kind of context, and that, with that, that sort of perspective. We recognize that being human and uh, constructing good societies and living good lives and forming good relationships is a working process. A process involves the need to change or to adapt. I'm minded of something that Confucius said a very long time ago. He said, to stay the same, you have to change because the world changes around you. And you've got to be adaptable and flexible to the extent of being able to preserve the things that matter to you and which are important to you. That's a very good insight, I think. But all the changes that uh, are necessary in an individual life as you grow up and in a society as it grows older uh, will never change the fact that there are these underlying universals, the simplest and most elementary things that we know all people need in order to have a chance of flourishing, those things that we capture in our regimes of, uh, of human rights and civil liberties. Very, very powerful closing. Thank you very much, Professor A.C. Grayling. Uh, for I really appreciate, and I know the audience appreciated this hour. The book is called Ideas That Matter, The Concepts That Shape the 21st Century. The website is acgrayling.com. Appreciate this conversation with you. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me on. All the best to you. I'm Gary Knoll. That's a continuation of our series of conversations with Remarkable Minds professor from, um, from the University of London and Oxford University, A.C. Grayling.